0: Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this show, we aim to interview leaders from a range of performance disciplines within the tactical performance space to help you improve performance at the individual and organizational level. Now, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show, guys. You'll notice we don't run any ads here, but we do ask for you to pay a simple and small fee. And that fee is this. If you find value in the show, and I'm pretty confident you are, because we have some incredible guests each week, then please share the show. You know, if you're chatting with friends and colleagues about education and development, please recommend us. As I said, you know, we don't run ads here and we continue to grow organically for you listener. So please spread the word and help us get this information out to a lot more people. Now, guys, on this week's episode, I'm really happy to sit down and chat with Andrew Bell, where we have an awesome conversation about everything paramedicine and operational cognitive readiness. Andy is a super knowledgeable guy, but really tells things in such a nice, simple, straightforward manner as well. I think you guys will really enjoy this episode and get a lot from it. Before we get into it, just give you a bit of background on who Andy is. He's a lecturer in paramedicine at the University of Southern Queensland and has been working in the higher education space for the last eight years. Prior to making the move into academia, he spent 14 years working for the Queensland Ambulance Service as an on-road paramedic. And prior to that, he had a career in exercise science, physical education and outdoor education settings in his native New Zealand. He's currently working towards his PhD, investigating the evolution of professional paramedicine education paradigm. He also leads a multidisciplinary team of researchers looking at the operational cognitive readiness as a physiological and psychological nexus for operators in high-threat environments. In this episode, me and Andy chat about his career path into paramedicine, his training and education frameworks, stress inoculation in paramedics, the use of virtual reality in training of paramedics, and developing operational cognitive readiness. Good evening, Andy, and welcome to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, No worries. It's evening evening here, is it? It's not evening there, though, is it? No, no. We're morning here, mate. Are you morning? Yeah. Well, that's
1: why you look so fresh, and I perhaps not so much, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Always the charmer, mate. Always the charmer, Andy. I like it, mate. (laughs) Honestly, thanks a lot, Andy, for jumping on and chatting to me, mate. Um, Obviously, through the powers of social media, we managed to get hooked up and connected, mate. And... You know i really liked some of the stuff you were putting out through on linkedin just some of the research you're looking into and the thing that jumped out to me as well is obviously as we'll get into is your background as a paramedic and i tend to find within the tactical space a lot of focus does go to the military to the police and the fire we don't tend to look too much in with regards to the paramedics even though it is such a specialist role and the demands on them guys as well so it's really interesting to get you on dude and just you know really pick your brains about everything around paramedicine and the work you are doing currently
1: Mate, well, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm uh, a fan of your podcast, to be fair. And uh, I, when I sort of perhaps give you a little bit of a background on where I'm from and stuff, you'll see that, uh, you know, I started in sport as well. Um, and so a lot of my background in this move towards, I guess, improving performance and things comes from, a, a, I guess, a love of sport and human movement and, and you know, how do we make ourselves better so uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to uh, to a number of the episodes of yours. Uh, so look, look, thanks for having me. Let's um, let's see where we can take this one. We'll find a rabbit hole and jump down it, shall we?
0: Awesome, awesome, Andy. So you touched on upon it briefly there having like a little bit of a background in sport, but you know for me, and you've had the chance to chat away a lot off camera. If anyone hasn't come across you, Andy, and you know your career path, and like, can you just tell us where you start out and where you're currently at.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, if, if you hadn't picked it from my accent, I'm a Kiwi. I'm a New Zealander by by uh, by birth. Grew up in uh, New Zealand and did um, my initial uh, university training uh, at Otago University and I studied uh, physical education, so a human performance type background. And I also uh, studied education as well, so I did, some, did a double sort of thing there. And then went on to do um, some high school PE teaching and, and a few other bits and pieces. And then I moved into the world of outdoor education, which if if you've sort of got any sort of idea about New Zealand, you'd probably have a fair idea that that's pretty much our our thing, our jam. Uh, and so I spent a number of years working in the environment of, uh, you know, sort of rock climbing, mountaineering, bushcraft work, whitewater kayaking, that sort of stuff. Uh, and while I was interested in the skill side of it, Really, what I found most interesting was the way that you could utilize those environments in order to develop both individual and group skill sets. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, to me, there's no greater way to develop a, 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 an individual's resilience or a group's sort of ability to communicate and cooperate than putting them into, you know, so outside, of course, you know, military type operations and things. We are talking about this sort of general public here. Is this, you know, these outdoor environments, you put someone on top of a mountain in the snow, um, with a couple of other people and they depend on each other for survival, That they, they learn to get along pretty quick, otherwise things don't go so good. Yeah. Um, and so that was my background there for, for a number of years I really enjoyed that, you know, I spent a bit of time traveling doing some scuba diving work, etc, and then ended up in the UK. Um, which I thoroughly enjoyed and uh, met uh, a, a girl, my girlfriend at the time is now my wife and, and she's Australian. And, uh, and so we moved over here to Australia. And when I came here, I was like, you know what, I want to do something different uh, for, outside of what I'd already done. But I really wanted something that incorporated the skill set that I felt like I'd already been building on for a number of years. And I also wanted something practical. You know, I didn't want to do anything. I don't want to be sitting in an office 24-7. That wasn't going to be my jam. Um, and interestingly, I guess, and I hadn't thought about this at the time, but my father um, had been an ambulance officer, not, not a paramedic because this was 30 plus years ago. There, there really was no such thing as a paramedic. It, you know, He was working in a small rural town in New Zealand and he was a volunteer. He drove an ambulance to be honest looking back what they did was incredible because they had very limited training they had a very limited amount of equipment they didn't really have anything like the uh the drug therapy protocols we have now the etc but they still got sent out to you know large scale road traffic crashes and things like that and and uh, and i guess i don't know it probably planted a little seed and I went, yeah, I think, well, maybe when I go to Australia, I'll have a look at that. So I applied for the Queensland Ambulance Service and, and got in and, and studied with them um, as part of their internal training as it was back then, because this was pre the move to tertiary education, um, which is where it sits now. And in fact, my, my main role now is as I'm a lecturer in, in paramedicine. Um, but I, I, I worked uh, for the Queensland Ambulance Service uh, full time as, as an advanced care paramedic for a number of years. Um, Did a number of roles there and and then was seconded, probably because of my formal education background, which was a bit rare in the paramedic world, um, to a university that was moving into the tertiary space to provide uh, an undergraduate paramedicine degree, which is now the the standard norm here in Australia. So uh, in order to be what would be considered a a baseline paramedic in, in the world or certainly in Australia... Um, you have to complete an undergraduate degree before you can get to the start line. So I was part of a, a group that helped put together some of the early stuff there. And then um, since then, I've kind of, I had a foot in both worlds. Um, I continued to study and um, did a, a master's of clinical education, uh, moved to unis and now teaching at, at another university uh, and started a PhD um, looking at the evolution of the, the the paramedic education paradigm, really about this idea of where we were, where we are, and what we need to do to get to where we want to be. So, so for me, everything really has been moving towards this idea of how do we improve performance, and in my particular case, how do we improve the performance of paramedics. And and I know that you know when we spoke off I, off air, I spoke about the idea of improvement of performance, but for me, what has to sit like right side by side they're, they're, they're indistinguishable in my opinion to performance is this concept of and we'll use I'll use the global term wellness because I think it just kind of encapsulates most things it is this idea of how do we keep our operators as well as possible and that means both you know mentally and emotionally physically um, so that they can perform as well as possible and uh, that has then led me into the research space uh, and in the last couple of years I've been sort of dabbling in and around this area of of what is known as operational cognitive readiness which is a really interesting term Um, and I've been working with a number of different research groups uh, both in Australia and internationally as well Uh, and I guess where for me it all kind of comes back to is how, how do we make better operators? Now, whether or not it's paramedics or whether or not it's any other type of operator, and it could be something in a high acuity situation like a, like a, a police SWAT team, it could be military, I guess, as well. But I think it, what's interesting here is you can move outside of that and into areas, things like, what about the stress levels in, in train drivers, for example? You know what about the stress levels in, and uh, even people like um, delivery drivers, truck long haul truckers. You know all this kind of stuff. There's there's just so much interesting work to be done in the space. So yeah, long story short, New Zealand small town boy did a little bit of sports stuff, loved it. Yeah, bye bye, and here I am. There you
0: go. <laughs> I like him, man. Nice little wrap up there, Andy. So <laughs> obviously really varied career there mate and you know you've done a lot you're doing a lot as well for the profession and um, let's let's pull it back just for a bit you know just like you said you started out very much in the outdoor education side of things you know like active outgoing guy from New Zealand As you know guys got the climate down there it's a beautiful place for all that sort of stuff what was it like then you know one making the transition into paramedicine and what what sparked the interest in paramedicine? Was it the fact that your dad had been involved in the ambulance service then, and you decided paramedicine was more the route you wanted to go down, or did you ever consider going down, like you know, the the physician's route as a as a, as a doctor as well?
1: Yeah, it, it's a it's a good point. I I did consider, I did consider medicine and, and things like that. I, I think my background, particularly this background of of. The physical aspect of doing. Um, and I use the term practice based profession, someone who does. Uh, for my mind, my skill set, uh, the way I like to interact with my environment, the fact that, um, from my perspective, I enjoy the autonomy of being and doing for myself. You know, I'm not a big fan of being between four walls, the thought of sitting in a doctor's surgery you know, eight to 10 hours a day, whatever else, it certainly didn't really appeal. And and the idea of doing something as, as niche as surgery or whatever, really, again, just really didn't appeal to me all that much. Although, you know, there, there, there's an exceptional level of skill in those particular professions. It just didn't really sort of sit with me. So whether or not what happened with my dad planted a seed, I don't know. You know, my, my father had passed away before I ever even considered being a paramedic. So I never got to have that conversation. I've, You know, that's one of those conversations you kind of perhaps wish you could have had, but I guess I'll never get to have that one. Um, so for me, when I started looking around, I thought about other occupations, uh, but really I was looking at something that would tick boxes. Firstly, I needed to do something physical. Um, something. I, I, secondly, I needed to do something that would challenge me. I, I needed to be challenged um, both uh, in, intellectually, I guess, or cog- cognitively and, and physically as well. Um, I wanted to be a part of, of while I like the autonomy of working on my own and making decisions for my own, I like the idea of a collective. I'm, I'm a fan. I think humans, you know, we're we're tribal, you know, and, and I like that feeling. I loved playing team sport. I loved playing rugby, for example. I love that kind of – I'm a Kiwi, so of course I love playing rugby. But anyway, um, and, uh, and so I found that. And then really, I guess the last one for me was I, I really felt like I needed to do something that mattered, and that's not to take away from other people who do other things because they do what they do because they they feel that's important. That's totally fine. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like I feel like I need to contribute to society, and I feel like I need to contribute in a way that's that's ethical and moral. Um, and for me, something like paramedicine sort of ticked those boxes, and um, and so and plus. You know, I'd had that background in anatomy and physiology, et cetera. I'd done a lot of those sorts of papers at university during my early undergrad work. And so I was interested in the body. I'm intrigued by this machine that we have. It's it's a funky old machine that we're running here. And the fact that we're, you know, we're running some kind of software that we don't really understand in a hardware system that we still don't really understand, but it'll do a whole bunch of cool stuff. But sometimes it doesn't do things that we want it to do, and then that interacts with the environment that we're in, and then how does that work? And then sometimes it breaks down, and I don't know. I just find that intriguing. So I was like, well, you know, let's put all those things together, and you mix them all together, and you come out with paramedic, I guess. Well, from (laughs) my
0: perspective. Nice, man. Nice. One thing I was wanting to ask you, Andy, as well as like, because obviously you said when you made the move over into paramedicine you know you went through the uh, the the internal training pathway as well when you made that move um, and things have changed now with regards to paramedicine education stuff and the biggest thing I've taken away from just chatting to you as well you know I take that you're you know you're very much a deep thinker and you're always questioning like well, right how can we do things better you know not just because we've done it this way for so long So I just want to know like from your thoughts and perspectives on you know, how how is um, you know training changed within paramedicine like from historically to where it is now as well
1: yeah that's a really good question how okay i'm going to i I need to I need to pigeonhole this a little bit which is yeah. i will use the australian context yeah, no because worries. one thing that i mean i know you're a global podcast so I, one thing that's probably important to clarify here is that paramedicine worldwide um, is suffering somewhat from an identity crisis. We we don't really know exactly what we are, in a global sense, if, and in fact, even in a national sense. So, if we had this conversation with others, yeah, you know, if you asked hundred paramedics in Australia to define paramedicine, you would get a hundred slightly different answers, right? But if you asked paramedics in the UK to define it as opposed to Australia, you certainly get different answers. If you ask, I was recently having some conversations with some gentlemen from Germany. They have a very different model there. So the term itself is problematic because we don't really know what we are. We're, we're very much um, an evolving profession. Mm-hmm. We're, we've, we are, you know, you think about it, medicine has been around for centuries, centuries. Uh, physiotherapy yourself i mean i'm not exactly sure when physiotherapy was recognized as a profession but it's certainly been decades Mm -hmm. you know and a number of decades well paramedicine in most countries in the world is still not recognized as a what you would i guess a legitimate profession You know, even in australia here where we've had tertiary education so we've had degrees here for for near on 20 years from the first first iterations we've only had registration here as a as a as a registered professional body since um 2018 so when you start thinking about that then it's very difficult to disconnect um educational evolution from what is the evolution of the of the identity of the profession because they're intrinsically linked because Mm -hmm. you can't have the evolution of the profession without the education but the education requires the evolution in order to be useful otherwise it doesn't it teaches things that can't be used for example so so we're in this interesting transition phase uh and there's certainly a lot of stuff going on this is actually where a lot of my phd works sits at the moment um, there's a number of researchers here in australia working on this type of of question there's a, a guy in sydney buck reid who's doing some some really great work in this area which is how um uh, Susan, Furnace is another really great researcher in this space looking at identity. You know, how do, we, how do we define what we are? And then once we've defined what we are, can we start to extrapolate back to what is it we need to know in order to be what we are? It's a bit of a weird one because when you start thinking about things like curriculum development, then when you look at what is at the moment considered, I guess, the gold standard in curriculum development is this idea of backwards design, which is, You start from the end goal and the end goal is what does the graduate or what does the the thing look like? What does a paramedic look like? What is that skill set? What is that knowledge, skills and attributes that makes up a paramedic? And then you work back from that through the curriculum, breaking it down into smaller and smaller chunks until you get all the way to the end, which is like these are the individual things we'll start to teach. But the problem with a backwards design model is that you have to start with a really firm understanding Of where you're going to Mm -hmm. and if you have a profession which is having trouble identifying itself then how do you work back from that Uh, and so we're in this interesting phase now in saying that when we're talking about how have things changed um, the model that i went through which was an an in-house kind of diploma type training program was very much the old model where a, a number of, of countries still utilize this model, which is a competency-based type model. It tended to work on a list of skills. It tended to be things like, you know, there is, an, a, there is a, an, a hierarchy of skills. Some skills were considered to be more foundational. I, I, I hesitate to use the word basic because basic would indicate they're easy and that's not always the case. But mm-hmm. you would know that from your, your patient assessment, for example, right? You learn yeah. patient assessment early days in your physiotherapy. Is it easy? No, hell no, no, right? Like, not to do it well anyway, right? Yeah. Um, So, you know, there was this hierarchical kind of uh, idea of, you know, increasing complexity of skills. And then as you sort of got better at one level of skills, you got to move to the next and you kind of tick boxes until eventually you became this thing at the top, this top of the pyramid, which was this idea of, in our case, which was a a paramedic. Um, That system was inherently okay for the time and the place but it has a number of limitations mostly of which is that it doesn't it it doesn't really accommodate a huge amount of critical thinking and it really doesn't allow for a huge amount of autonomy of thought or decision making etc you tend to work to fairly rigid protocols Mm -hmm. um and the operators that work within those competencies tend not to stray outside of those because in doing so you step outside of things like your scope of practice and and you can make yourself liable. So it's a self-limiting methodology in terms of the ability to really evolve as a a thinking critical clinician. So the move into in in Australia again and I'm putting it in that pigeonhole required this move and transition into the tertiary space but then That initial transition into the tertiary space wasn't without issues because much of the early transition was really just a movement of that competency-based framework into the tertiary space with a bit of extra information kind of put it on top. So you do essentially the same structure, but with more anatomy or more physiology. So do you know more? Sure. Does that make you a more critical thinker? Does it make you a better decision maker, et cetera? There's a whole lot of, I guess, you know, there'd be debates about that till the cows come home. The reality is for us as a profession, if we really want to grasp this idea of evolving into a true thinking clinical profession on the large scale, because don't get me wrong, individually, there are many, many really high quality operators out there who are really good critical thinkers who have even, have come through an old system, et cetera. But I'm talking about the evolution of the whole profession upwards. Um, then there's this move into this idea of, of frameworks and curricula? And we're seeing that now the latest, the latest um, iterations of curricula are just starting to come through in a place like Australia. And we're really starting to see this move away from these competency-based check sheets and lists of skills, et cetera. Into more of an idea of a, of this idea um, that someone like um, um, Oliver Hamlet from from Scotland from Aberdeen um, yeah. w- talks about these ideas of human factors. You know when he's talking about um, working with helicopter rescue pilots. So things like situational and awareness, things like um, uh, decision making, adaptability, resilience. You know the, these are these are words that get thrown around. the kind of you know cool words that get put out there all the time. The reality is is that we're starting to see those words built into curricula not just lip services oh if you do these things you will get critical you will get situational awareness well what is that what does that mean what do you like win it in the lottery or something it's more a case of these skills are being identified as the actual skill sets required and then you can plug in information like I don't know, how to cannulate or how to read a 12 lead ECG or, you know, how to perform a, a good primary or secondary survey, whatever. And so that's the evolution. The evolution is we're moving from that competency-based check sheet type level into this broader concept of, of these broader human factors. Um, you know, other words that get to terms that use the things like non-technical skills is another one that gets kind of thrown around, but... Um, it, these ideas of, of metacognition, um, problem solving, decision making, mental flexibility, resilience, yeah, yeah, uh, that's, that's where we're going, that's the, that's the evolution. Are we there yet? Um, probably not. No, definitely not. Are we on our way? Sure, yep. And are some things, people doing it better than others? Are some institutions being doing it better than others? Sure. But we also have a problem where the majority of the research and the majority of the researchers and the majority of the academics have come from a particular paradigm, right? They were like me; they're they're old, they're dinosaurs. I'm I'm not insulting my my contemporaries at all, but you know, we we came from a particular um, type of learning and education. So we have intrinsically humans are interesting. We we tend to revert back to the way we were taught. It's a human thing. You think about you know your own performance and the way you do stuff, and and often when you're under pressure, often when you are required to make a snap decision, you will revert back to your you know your original. Re- it's like having that reset. You know what's your what's your computer reset level? Your, your your underlying operating system. Yeah. And you kind of get sent back there and you do it again. So we we're seeing now you know academics and researchers coming through who who are and have come through in this new transition system. And, and we're starting to see this real blossoming and stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm excited about the future for paramedicine. I'm excited about the future for the um, work in the curriculum development of these types, mm-hmm. not just paramedicine, but uh, operators across this sort of high acuity, high stress, time critical
0: type environments. Nice, one, And that's interesting to hear as well, dude. And I know from your, your background as an educator as well, you know, how, how do you see things like institutions starting to implement more of this as well with regards to those mental uh, that mental cognition work on top like layering that on top of those foundational skills as well what, what do you think the the steps need to be to start increasing more of that into the programs
1: well I mean it has to start at the curriculum yeah. if it's not in the curriculum then it's not going to be taught
0: <laughs> uh,
1: and so it, you know it, it all starts with the foundations of what are the building blocks of the curriculum and that means then if i go back to that backwards design concept that means what what do we want to produce what Mm -hmm. kind of operator are we trying to produce once we really have a firm grasp of that we're gonna be able to start really building on things. Now we do have, the, don't get me wrong, theres there's been some outstanding work by, you know, APRA has done some wonderful work. Uh, the Australasian College of Paramedicine's has done some, uh, some wonderful work in the space. It's, 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 it's happening. This is, a, this is a living, breathing thing that we're talking about here. It's literally evolving by the day. But we also then need buy-in. We need buy-in from uh, industry. That's super important. One of the biggest issues that, hamstrung the evolution of education within this particular space is that in the transition years much of what was being driven was being driven by this idea of or this concept of what I'm I'm going to use the term in inverted commas road ready model which was this idea of you roll someone out at the end of an undergrad degree ready to be in our case road ready on road as a paramedic. You know, in your case, you know, as a physio, are you ready to step out of your undergrad degree and operate autonomously as a physiotherapist? I don't know. I don't know enough about physiotherapy education, but certainly there was this idea of this road ready model um, and that they were pretty much plugged into these graduates came out and they were plugged into ambulance services and given a socialization phase. You know, you call it a grad program if you want, but that's, yeah, that I would debate that particular term um and and then after a socialization phase they are effectively you know let loose on the world Mm -hmm. um so with because that was the driving factor because that's the way that things had been previously except they had been training them in-house um now they were getting them from universities but there was still this expectation of what they were um there was that was that was a problem that was a barrier to the evolution of education because you couldn't go to, you know, a particular ambulance service and say, hey, you know, we want to we produce this graduate for you who's going to be able to do, you know, uh, have a really great emotional intelligence and they're going to have this really interesting concept of situational awareness and they're going to think really, int- they're going to have a, they're going to be a self-directed learner who's going to want to think about their transparency of learning. And you'd get, you'd get tumbleweed and crickets because just, that just wasn't where it was at. Uh, and but we've seen that that changes that change is happening, and so now we're you know, moving into the space, which is like cool. What can we do with these? What can we do with these grads? And now that we're seeing that, now that we're going to be able to move into things like training of stress inoculation, for example, that's an interesting space. Um, and we're seeing that in industry as well. We're seeing that with private training providers. There's a there's a group here in Australia called Tacmed, which is a which is a large scale. Um, industry tactical medical training organisation. And they're doing some really interesting work um, in this this idea of stress inoculation for what are essentially non-military. Although they talk about tactical medical, yes, that's not their bread and butter. Their bread and butter is people like, you know, the police um, or search and rescue and things like that. And so able to build in this idea of stress inoculation training within um, their educational methodology. So that we can start to see an improvement in that sort of stuff. So look, it's it, you know, this is a huge beast. Um, this is this is we can talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, but I'll, I don't want to bore you or <laughs> your listeners with educational theory, uh, uh, which is it's, it's uh, which is my, my
0: interest. It's solid stuff there, Andy. And you make an interesting point there as well around stress inoculation. Because I was gonna ask you, because obviously paramedics are exposed to a lot of high stress um you know situations throughout the course of their career as well but also their their medical skill like you need a lot of fine motor skills for a lot of the stuff you guys are doing as well so how do you effectively train individuals who have that foundation also you say you've come out of the undergraduate degree program they've got that that foundation so period within a job as well and they're let loose but you know how, how do you you know increase that stress inoculation from perspective because you'll never be able to eradicate it from the nature of the work at all so how do you how do you prepare guys successfully for it
1: it's a, that's the six million dollar question I yeah. think uh, I don't think we have a, a, a really truly legitimate answer for that yet unfortunately and I think you know we spoke about this uh, off air in order to achieve a good result, and a good result in paramedicine is the best possible outcome for the patient, mm-hmm. whatever that might be, right? Now, that best possible outcome might still be a bad day at the office. You know, you, you know, a broken, leg's a broken leg is a broken leg, you know, a, a heart attack is a heart attack. They're having a bad day. Um, but the best possible outcome for our patient was really the, I guess, what was always being aimed for a lot of the time there wasn't really a lot of thought put into, well, what about the people who are performing the task that leads to the performance outcome? So if you look back in the literature, uh, up until not that long ago, less than 10 years ago, there was almost zero research being done in the operator, paramedic operator wellness space, Mm -hmm. whether or not it was emotional, psychological, physical, you know, there really wasn't much being done at all. There was the odd study here being done, um, mostly on things like burnout or because paramedics in general have a a higher level of things like suicide than general population, um, often attributed to things like PTSD, et cetera. Um, There was the odd study here and there, but the reality was there was very little being done on things like the effect of sleep or lack of sleep. the cumulative effect of small levels of stress over a large period of time, because uh, what we now know is that most paramedics don't tend to crack under the pressure of a single large job. It's the cumulative response. Uh, I'll put this in your uh, back in your you know. Do most people who come to a physio with knee pain, generalized knee pain? Is that because they had one single traumatic event? Or is it a lifetime of beating up their knees, doing a job where they're doing like kneeling on concrete? You know, they probably, which one is it?
0: Yeah, it's definitely always more chronic, isn't it? So I think.
1: Almost certainly. And, and so it's the same thing with us uh, as paramedics. We, we tend to, you know, take a board, a lot of stuff, and it doesn't necessarily, you might not have that big job. Our, our jobs, for most paramedics, some paramedics working in the really high acuity spaces will tend to see sort of big job after big job. But most paramedics day to day don't. You'll see a big job here and there, and then there'll be a lot of little ones in between. But those little ones also have an effect. You know, emotionally, it's hard work to sit with, you know, little old granny, um, you know, little old Betty, she's, she's 92 she's run because her cat died she doesn't have anyone to talk to because her partner of 56 years passed away a couple of years ago she doesn't have any family nearby they've all passed away or moved away and she's lonely and her cat's died and and you don't have anything to do for her not clinically anyway right in the sense of you're not going to be putting a line in her and giving her any drugs or anything it's more like Well, you sit down with her for an hour or so and you make a cup of tea and you have a chat and you have, that doesn't really seem like much, does it? But it is because you're taking that on board. Now, that one time is not going to be a problem, but if you do something like that, not necessarily Betty every time, but something like Betty, you times that by a thousand times and and now we've got a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So inherently, we have this issue where as... Uh, in, in terms of our education, how do we start to inoculate against something that's fairly innocuous? How do you how do you inoculate against something where they don't even see it coming? Um, can, we, can we get them to recognise things better in terms of their own response? And this is the kind of stuff, and I'll, I'll give an example of, of, and this is a very simple example, but it's a super, I think, a, a really great, Indicator of the type of, of effect you can have. So in, in paramedicine, um, we use and most in, in almost all medical terms, you know, we utilise this thing called a primary survey. Now there are variations of primary surveys, but in in general, they tend to fit the same main criteria because they are the ones that are most important in that first sort of you know thirty seconds to to two minutes of contact with a patient. And you know, it's the classic. You know, danger, is there a danger to yourself, your partner, the patient, others? Can you manage that danger? You don't move on until that danger is assessed. We, we use the term find it, fix it before we move them on. Response, how responsive is the patient? We use a various set of scales to, to analyze, you know, how responsive they are. That response level then puts us into another category of whether or not we're gonna check for airway, breathing, circulation. Because, you know, those are our three big ticket items. Without them, things don't go so good. Or we might go back the other way and go, well, maybe we need to check the heart first. It might be actually circulation, airway, breathing. And then there's a couple of adjuncts in there along the way. There'll be things like a major life-threatening hemorrhage. If there's a giant hole in the person, we need to plug it immediately. Otherwise, blood's not so good on the outside of the body. Um, And it could be something like if they are in a a, a cardiac arrest, maybe a a shockable rhythm. We we we're not defibrillate as quickly. Quickly as possible, and we also want to consider things like mechanism of injury, C spine mobilisation, etc. That's that's all happening in that first sort of thirty seconds to two minutes. So there's a huge amount to process there. There's a massive amount of cognitive load, Mm -hmm. and so and that's why we use systems, right? That systems reduce cognitive load because they allow you to put things within the scaffolding. So we're like, well, how do you help? How do you reduce that cognitive load further? And this idea of um, recently, we've added into our primary survey, just our one that we're teaching, but there's, there's variations on this theme, this concept of what we call a cognitive pause. So when they come in, they might go, danger. I'm assessing for danger. People object play. I'm looking for things that might be of a danger to myself others. Okay, I'm already starting to be quite overstimulated. I'm now thinking about my patient's response level. I'm trying to communicate with them whether or not they're conscious, unconscious, et cetera. And then I go to do something else and it's like, you know what? just going to physically take a moment. It might be something as as a mindful breath. It might actually be a step back. A physical step back, it might be, might not have, it could be just a a mental step back. But in that moment, you take that breath, you take that step back, you go, okay, where am I at? After that response, this is where I need to go next. Okay, this is where I'm gonna go next. And you move in and you go to that next thing. But every time you get to a point where you think, hey, maybe I'm starting to get cognitively overloaded. Maybe I'm start, it's getting away on me. And you see this a lot in high acuity situations. Um, the tactical guys will tell you about this. This is this is one of their big problems. It, it's it's a runaway train. Mm-hmm. It, it's a snowball down a hill, and you need to slow it down. And so, you know, we're teaching something now that we call a cognitive pause. It's got another a couple of other names. Um, in a in a, a particularly non politically correct thing, a, a paramedic friend of mine calls it a, a cognitive cigarette. You know, so they sit back and they they have a bit of a moment. <sighs> and then they go again all right um and so that kind of work is the kind of stuff it sounds so simple but when you start putting these things into systems and those systems role is to try and make the decision making process as less stressful as possible then you're going to start to see positive outcomes downstream
0: like, obviously with research going forward with that, I'll be interested to see just that track and how that improves performance outcomes as well, like and stopping that that cognitive loading factor. That's really interesting, mate. And no um with regards to we were chatting off air a little bit around like, you know, the impact COVID's had on training and stuff and how things have had to switch up. And obviously we touched on like the use of uh, VR as well okay. as a as a as a method for training, but also for like trying to get used to some stress inoculation there as well. So you know, where, where do you see that going with regards to VR, like its purpose and its performance aspect for tactical medicine?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's quite a bit of evidence starting to come through that uh, the, a properly designed VR program delivered in an appropriate manner. Uh, there's a group here in Australia called Emergisim that are doing a really good job with that sort of stuff. There's a number of others out there. Um, is able to elicit a physiological response that is almost almost as high as that of the real thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because that was always the problem was, ah oh, the VR doesn't really stimulate it. It's like, well, actually it does. All right. There is evidence out there to show things like heart rate increases, respiratory rate increases, diaphoresis increases, et cetera. So That in itself is a good thing, but really where the strength of something like VR for the use of training in stress and stress inoculation, et cetera, is um, the reliability of its reproducibility. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Because in any kind of, you'd see this again from your physio world, it's really hard to get 50 physio students to practice the exact same thing on 50 different patients. Yep isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. you all like, I'm assuming that you probably did a lot of work in labs where you probably all used each other as crash test dummies, right? And you poked and prodded and everything else. Well, your pain response is different to my pain response. So if we're poking away on each other, doing the same test, we're probably going to give slightly different answers, right? Because we're different. It goes without saying. And then also not just with learning, but also with assessment, you know, how hard is it? And we use the term OSCE. I don't know what you guys use in terms yeah, of your OSCE you know, well. um, Yeah, OSCE. Okay. So this idea of a practical exam, it's very, very difficult from some, for someone like myself as an educator to ensure that we have super high reliability and reproducibility in an assessment so that every single student is getting assessed in exactly the same way. That's almost impossible to do, right? Even with, you know, fairly high level simulators, you know, we have mannequins that do all sorts of things, they beep and bleep and they do everything else. The reality, and if you use any kind of actor, then you're going to get a difference in the way that person acts. You know, even if the, you use the same actor, but they have to do the same OSCE 20 times, you can't tell me that that actor is doing it exactly the same 20 times over. And in fact, by the end of the day, they're just like, get me the hell out of here. I am done with this thing, right? So the beauty of something like VR is that it is exactly the same, Mm -hmm. meaning that if if you could put 20, it's scalable, right? You could put 20 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 operators through the exact same stimulus, Now, if the stimulus is exactly the same, then you can measure their response to the stimulus. And if there's a difference in their response, then it's not the stimulus, is it? It's gotta be the operator because the stimulus is the same. And then we can start to isolate things like particular variables within that. So we can then change particular variables Within the within the systems, so we can start to isolate. Well, what if we change this one thing? What does that do to the outcomes of the operators by changing that one thing? Or what if we, um, for example, use uh, teams? We can use more than one operator, and we can be giving them the same thing and operating within the same environment at the same time. You know, and. Then, because it's in a lab-type environment, we can utilize uh, work, uh, we can utilize physiological measures, things like hexo-skins or astro-skins. There's some really incredible work being done um, by Sandy Macquarie at Griffith University. Um, I, in fact, I, I think um, you're going to be chatting to him at some point in the not-too-distant future, yeah, I believe. Hopefully um, not, mate, he's, 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 he's a fantastic guy. I mean, I'm lucky enough. I'm actually going to be doing some work with him on some of this exact stuff very soon. Where we're we're looking at, okay, well, if we can change up particular variables, then how does that translate in terms of things like heart rate variability? How does it translate in things like respiratory rate? And how does that then translate to things like their um, level of stress or their feeling of stress? And then the other cool thing about something like VR, is that you can utilize this idea? And this, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work with some researchers at the University of Southern Queensland on this idea of using uh, pupillometry. Pupillometry is the idea that one of the key indicators of how well you make a decision can be measured by where you look. All right, now, which is a crazy concept, I know, but I'll just try and break it down into a very, very simple thought process. <clears throat> intuition which to be fair is usually wrong right we know that that's been proven intuition would say to us an an expert will walk into a room and they'll see all the different variables and they'll be able to make the best decision because of it right that would be intuition generally but what the evidence supports is that if you put an expert and a novice into the exact same environment, i.e. a VR environment, so they've got the exact same stimulus and they're going through the exact same simulation, what the expert will do is that they will very quickly eliminate variables. So they will very quickly scan and then they will go, I don't need that. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. And every time you every time you prune a variable, you reduce the number that you have in order to make a decision,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah? The more variables, the more decisions. The less variables, the less decisions. And what we know about decision-making is that the more complex the variables, the more decisions that have to be made, the less likely you are to make the right one. So pupilometry by measure, where's the novice, I'll go back. To, so the novice walks into that exact same simulation and just goes, Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, what about that? Oh, uh. and then cognitive overload. Oh my God, I need to make a decision about that. Do I have to think about that? What about that? Uh, oh, I'll come back to that. I'll come back. Now, could both operators end up at the same decision? Sure. Absolutely. Of course, they could. Can the experts still get it wrong? Absolutely. But we're talking about percentages here mm-hmm. the expert who is able to prune variables more quickly and reduce the number of decisions being required is more likely to make the better decision more quickly yeah so the novice could still end up making the right decision but it might take them longer to get there if that makes sense that's fine so pupilometry, where you look can be used as a measure of the accuracy of decision-making. Now, you you combine something like pupillometry in a VR world so that you can get reliability and reproducibility, and then you marry it to something like the use of of, of, biotech suits to measure physiological response, and you start to bring all that together, well, now we're starting to get some interesting data because now we're actually starting to get objective measures of people's response to stress. And that's that's an interesting place to be.
0: That's that's really interesting to hear as well. And like you said, just the objective feedback that's actually going to be something quantifiable to look and work with as well. I've never heard of the, the concept of peopleometry, but obviously that completely makes sense as well. Like you say, the guy who's more experienced is able to quickly eliminate things that aren't relevant to the situation, just concentrate on those variables that do matter. That is a really interesting thing to hear, dude, so.
1: Uh, but it's kind of counterintuitive isn't it because yes. you, you kind of think well the expert will see you more and and they kind of do but then they just don't need it they mm-hmm. prune stuff really quickly until they're back to what they need uh, and and in our world in the world of paramedicine um, that will lead to things like better decision making in a quicker period of time that might be that time critical intervention which makes for a better outcome for the patient mm
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm
1: which is what we were talking about sort of half an hour ago or so, wasn't it? Which is what was the point of all of this, which is, you know, the best outcomes for our patients, which has to mean that we have to produce the best performance from our operators in order to produce the best performance from our operators. They have to be as well as they possibly can, which means they have to be, um, you know, emotionally, physically, psychologically, physiologically, sort of as as tucked away or as tidied away as they can be and and that's this is I, I guess the, the the world that we're now moving in and operating in and this is there's lots of interesting work being done around the world um I know you come from the sports background there's there has been a lot of work done um in particularly in um the psychological measures or what we call top-down measures um, in this space by people like oliver hamlet from from aberdeen university
0: yeah.
1: he's developed a program there called helenots which is a, a helicopter rescue um pilot and winch crew um uh, psychosocial human factors program uh, which utilizes both peer and self-assessment tools and that's 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 really about that's a, that's an interesting one because much of that is Subjective, isn't it? Because whenever you ask someone something, then they're going to apply their subjective lens to it. And that's great. That's a super important aspect. Um, and then you've got the purely objective data of something like the the biotech, the, the astro skins, um hexaskins type stuff of people like Sandy Macquarie, which is you know, you can't just, th- that's heart rates and 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 blood pressures and things like that. So really the interesting one is this sort of this marrying between the two, this nexus point between the psychosocial psychological measures and the physiological measures. At that nexus point is where we're really, I think, on that's the that's where we are now. Looking for that environment, and, and we we want to start um, integrating this this concept of um, of allostatic load or allostasis. I, I don't know if you're, you're aware of that concept at all. No, it's a no. psychological term. Um, Really, it's this idea that, um, that the, the brain and the body is requires a particular level of energy in terms of dec- things like decision-making. And so much of our understanding of, of our perception is our body preparing for our brain's decision next set of decision-making. And, and that is a, a two-way street. So... Um, allostasis is this idea that it gives us this idea of forward-generated mental patterns, and it allows us to think, well, this is how much energy I'm going to need to contribute to this particular next decision. Uh, and the better of an understanding we have of, or um, ability to manage our allostatic load, then it means that we're better able to understand or manage this concept of cognitive overload, mm-hmm. and we can start to manage long-term decision-making in this Kind of afforded landscape, this world in which we perceive, in which we're working. Um, so it's that, that's a really interesting space, and that's going to come out of the, the top-down, bottom-up type approach because you need to have really an understanding of both the psychological and the physiological measures before we can really get a grasp of that one. Definitely. That's that's pretty interesting stuff.
0: Those, mate, that is and uh, it was interesting. Like you mentioned about that, and I know we were chatting off air as well about you know just a multidisciplinary approach to this to develop an operators of empower medicine as well and not just that siloed approach and i know last time we were chatting you you'd sat down you'd help put together the um, is the high threat optimization uh, working group
1: yeah so that's a group um and, and you know the, this interdisciplinary thing uh, i know we spoke about before there's no way that any one discipline psychologists um physiologists um paramedics any kind of human services whatever it might be can do the work that is required to answer this question or these questions it's a it's a it's a broader than an a question because the skill set required to just do this research is so broad that there's no way that one discipline could do this in their own little silo mm-hmm. some have tried Um, And some of the original research in this space, um, there was some, there's a really great paper written uh, just this year, actually, it was by Crameri and co out of Deakin University, which uh, attempted to map all of the current research in this area of what we're calling cognitive readiness, this idea And and they were mapping things like the the proposed components that make up this idea of cognitive readiness. So it's a fairly extensive list. It was things like situational awareness and and adaptability and flexibility and resilience, et cetera, it was quite broad. And then it went across all of the current literature of which there's not that much to be fair. And almost all of it is military based so far. The original um, work in this area uh, came off the back of some work by, uh, that I'm aware of anyway, um, Morrison and Fletcher. Around 2002, they released um, some work. Um, They actually proposed what I think is probably the original cognitive readiness um, definition. It's like mental preparation includes skills, knowledge, abilities, motivations, um, personal dispositions of an individual to establish and sustain competent performance in complex and unpredictable environments. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of, you know, and when you hear those words, you're like, well, that sounds like paramedicine. And that sounds like police tactical and that sounds so it, it, it's a neat definition but what Crimerian co found was that um there was no there's no one model at the moment that's able to actually like tickle the boxes most of the original models tended to be sort of sit it more towards the the psychological measures end um and they tended to really focus on skills knowledge and attributes yeah um And they really didn't have any kind of um objective measures and certainly the physiological measures weren't inherent within a lot of those models so what we're seeing now is 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 the the new research coming through is requiring this interdisciplinary approach um, where you have you know a group of physiologists and a group of psychologists of different types too not just you know you've got a clinical psychologist and a research psychologist and an organizational psychologist and you, an assistant, you know, and then you might have an exercise physiologist. Um, but then you might have someone, um, for example, who's a physiologist that specialises in things like sleep, for example, you know. And we're bringing them all together. Uh, and then the other big, I guess, interdisciplinary um, bridge is this um, gap between academia and, and, and industry, because you know, we, we all know that, you know, academics can sit up in their ivory towers at time and they come up with some wonderful theory and then they tell the world that this is how they should behave or that how they should do things. And and the world turns around and says, well, you can, you know where well, you can take your theory, um, you can stick it back up your ivory tower. And, and then the industry um, are just as bad because they turn around and go, well, we've been doing this for 50 years and since we've been doing it for 50 years, we must be right because well, no one's ever told us we're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reality is, is that, well, it's only right until it's proven wrong. And if you've never tried to prove it wrong, then how do you actually know it's right in the first place? So we've had this real weird kind of thing going on, right? Um, uh, so, you know, bringing that together. And so this this group that we've got, the, the high, high Threat Optimization Working Group, has brought together... A number of different disciplines. I think we've got five or six different disciplines, just off the top of my head. We've got um, groups from different universities working together because, you know, from our perspective, we're in this not because you know we're out for us, but rather, hey, can we make better, safer, higher-performing paramedics? Hey, let's let's. What have we got? What have you got? What have you got? And then we've got groups like, uh, I mentioned them earlier, TACMED, um, you know, industry people coming on board and saying, hey, look, we want to know whether or not our training programs are as good as we think they are. But we've got no evidence, you know, so why don't we say, well, we say, well, then why don't we create some research behind that? Why don't we study the interventions? Because one of the beauties of, of building a tool which allows us to measure things like Um, this idea of allostatic load as a measure of both top-down, psychological, bottom-up, physiological, is that we can extrapolate out some kind of of foundational score. Let's call it a global readiness, all right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a, a measure of global readiness for a particular operator, then you can then apply interventions. You can say, okay, well, this is this global, this is this operator's general level of global readiness. Now, that's specific to a particular afforded landscape, but it's applied to a particular thing that they're working in, then let's change something. Let's change it up. Let's give them a training program in this particular thing. And then we retest. And because we've got a score, a quantifiable score, and then we've got an intervention, and then we've got another quantifiable score, then what do we have there is evidence to support. If there's an improvement in the quantifiable score, then you can go back and say, well, what was the change? The change was the intervention. Okay, great, that intervention appears to have a net positive outcome for this operator. Now, if you can extrapolate that out across bigger numbers, N equals, who knows, large numbers, then you can start to um, actually say, well, hey, you know what? We're seeing a net positive improvement in readiness across a large volume of operators. And therefore that intervention appears to be uh, a positive intervention that performs this particular role
0: i mean it, it sounds awesome just like that group and just like bring that together as well like say like the the five or six different disciplines you've got sitting on that group and then that that key link as i've said to you before it seems to be missing in a lot of places between academia and industry i mean hats off to TACMED as well for just coming in and saying hey listen we're running these courses we want to see is it as good as we think it is as well And i mean uh, is, you know, very well, humble, but also, you know, very, very uh, profound of those guys to take that step forward with it as well, which is awesome.
1: I think that the the types of educators and the types of operators, whether or not they're paramedics or military or, or police tactical or whatever, who are prepared to be that self-reflective learner. And mm-hmm. I mean, that term gets thrown around willy-nilly at the moment. It's a bit of a hot, hot topic in the world of education is, so hum- you use the word humble, and I agree. You know, those are the operators who are legitimate about improving performance. Those are the those are the educators and the operators who want to do better. They want to be better, and they want better outcomes for others as well. Uh, and so, those are the types of people I want to be hanging out with. You know, yeah. those are the type. I, 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 I the last thing I think we need in this type of environment is a bunch of yes people that that's going to get us nowhere. Mm-hmm. But we also want people who, who are going to push the boundaries. We're going to people who are going to say, you know what, let's just, let's give this a crack and see where this goes. Uh, and that's where I just love working. You know, yeah, I've mentioned them earlier, um, Sandy Macquarie system does some fantastic work. He's pushing those boundaries. I love that. Um, and uh, ask him actually, when you, when you do the podcast with him, ask him about his work with, uh, with the guy with the really large hammer. He'll, um, He'll, he'll, he'll tell you about it and uh, and and then yeah guys like uh, the, the the guys from uh, from ta med um, you know Matt pepper Ben dan people like that they're, they're just they're just doing good work and they're doing it for the right reason they're doing it because they want to produce better performing more well operators Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that's again goes back to you know i guess where we started this whole conversation so yeah
0: definitely man and i know with regards to you you touched upon it briefly as well just uh, the early research of more of the psychological side of things from the the operational cognitive readiness side of things and i know you're doing a ton of research into as well so how do you see that uh, progressing going forward and that impact is going to have on clinical decision making for paramedics as well uh, well how's it going to go moving forward well again you know we're in uncharted territory
1: at the moment which is pretty exciting uh, from a research perspective how do we think it's going to go mm-hmm. um ideally if if i could uh if i could have it my way then that that model i just described to you where we we build uh the ability to measure things from a, a global understanding of of preparedness or readiness. Um, That that term I used before, allostatic load, is is really this idea of um, the ability to be able to predict um, required load. Uh, And so if we're able to, to create measures and so we can create a really reliable and therefore more valid form of assessment tool so that we can create these global preparedness-type scores, then we can start to integrate it into different types of um, intervention. And the intervention I used before was uh, an intervention of a training program. Mm -hmm. So, look, let's put in a new training program and then retest and see if we got a net improvement. But you could also start to put in things like, okay, well, this is how prepared this operator, let's use an example, a paramedic was in this environment to do this particular thing, maybe using something like VR because it's reliable and reproducible. And then we changed a variable. So you know what? We didn't let them sleep for two days. And then we redid the exact same test using the exact same stimulus because we can, because we can reproduce it. And we see how they go. Now, if there's a net negative outcome, then we can definitively say, well, what was the one variable that changed? Because everything else stayed the same. Their training didn't change. They they used the exact same equipment. The stimulus was exactly the same. The, The simulation was identical. Blah, 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 blah. What changed? Oh, they hadn't had any sleep. Oh, what happened to that preparedness? Well, it blew out the window. All right. So now we're starting to get more objective data around things like the effect of, say, shift work on people like paramedics. And there's a ton of work being done out there. I'm not saying that we're the only ones doing it. There's lots of people working in this space around sleep, nutrition. I know that you've, got, you've had some really fantastic presenters on your podcast talking about those exact things, right? The importance of sleep, the importance of nutrition, etc. It's not just the physical training. It's not just being fit in the sense of, you know, can you run a 10K or whatever? It's, you know... Um, are you ready for work? Yeah. And then on top of that, are you emotionally ready? And if I go back to those that cumulative load that we were talking about before, those that ongoing set of stresses that are involved with perhaps day to day work as something like a paramedic, can, can we start to really start to isolate those problems? And then once we can isolate them, then we can start to f- fix them. You know, we can. You you can't you can't work on removing a barrier until you can can nail down the barrier, what is the barrier? Okay, yeah. cool, there's the problem, we've, we've isolated it, cool, now how do we fix that? So I really feel like at the moment, we're still building the tools in order to allow us to really then start to make and enact those big changes. You know, um, once we have these more definitive ways to measure, and then we can make them more accessible. The last thing you want, the last thing I want, that's for sure, is to build these tools, build these assessment protocols, et cetera, and then they're only accessible to the 0.1 of the 1% of special forces soldiers in the world. Okay, that's great, and they they certainly deserve, they're certainly under stress, and they certainly deserve to be given that, but what about the long-haul truck driver? Yeah. What about the train driver that has to deal with um, people, you know, um, throwing themselves onto tracks in front of them and things like that, or perhaps level crossing crashes. You know, if, if we can start to take this to the broader world, to the broader audience, um, and we can start to extrapolate it out into all types of environments, and, and it might not necessarily just be then a physical one. It might not be something like truck driving. It could be something like um. What about, you know, CEOs or, or, you know, accountants in in, in a firm at tax time where where they're all under the pump, you know? Um, So for my mind, long-term, where do I see this? I guess the the holy grail would be the ability to be able to form really strong, reliable, valid measures that you're then able to extrapolate out into the broader public.
0: That's really interesting to hear, Nathan. I mean, one thing I'd say then is, can you see this change in the, the, the complete uh, landscape of work for paramedics as well? I know Tim Gabbett uh, from some of his research within sport, you know, looking at the acute and chronic training uh, ratio load. So if guys had a sudden huge spike in acute training load (coughs) compared to their, you know, their chronic sort of stuff, it's like, right, they've got more chance of an injury, you know, on the horizon for these guys or burnout you say that could be potentially within paramedic organizations so if you see things like you know like you mentioned if guys have got back-to-back shift work and then you do these cognitive tests and be like right is this guy truly ready for work or do we need to pull him off the line for a bit you know is that something like you could see for, happen within the paramedic world it's something I, I, I hope would happen
1: yeah um i think at the moment unfortunately uh, operational matters tend to take precedence over things like
0: mm-hmm.
1: operator wellness. And, and uh, so the reality is, is that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of things like politics and finances and money yeah. and all that sort of stuff, that's not my bag. And I, I'm, you know, I, I'll leave that for uh, the politicians, but, you know, it, it, yes, absolutely. But if there's still no other paramedic to take the place of the paramedic who can't go because they're about to explode, Mm -hmm. then who gets thrown back? And it's like, Hey, we haven't got anyone else on the bench. Put them back in. Yeah. You know, like if, to use the sporting analogy, put them back in. And unfortunately um, as much as I would love that to be the environment in which we could then say, Hey, this person's, you know, showing signs we have the assessment tools to indicate that they're perhaps you know, need a bit of a break or maybe they need some training in this particular area. Maybe they need to go away and do a bit of work on this or that or whatever else. Maybe they need to be given some, some work on, on their sleep patterns. Maybe they need to be given some nutritional advice, whatever it might be, the interventions might be. Um, unfortunately i think if if operationally you know there's still not enough staff or there's not enough people and there's too many and i don't know what it's like in the uk although i do have a number of ex-students of mine who are working in the uk and have been working in the uk as paramedics particularly over the covid Mm -hmm. period um and i know uh, in, in those early waves they were they were just getting thrashed absolutely thrashed they were just going out and out and out and they're dealing with really really sick people you know there was quite a large number of deaths as i'm sure you're aware in the uk and and these paramedics were just getting put me put them back in put them back in because there wasn't anyone else um unfortunately those kinds of operational manners matters will 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 still probably take precedence if we could change that mindset wow that's a you know, that's a whole nother ball game. And if something like what we're trying to construct—not just me, but this broader group of people out there working in this space—you um, know—if we're able to construct something that gives ammunition to that, to that, um, to that conversation, to that debate, then yeah,
0: man, bring it on, hundred percent. That's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Hopefully, we'll see something like that develop over the next few years as well. But like you say, it's. Mm um so that the operational demand of departments and stuff as well but yeah Mm. anyway andy i was going to ask you as well mix obviously you're currently doing your phd so you're obviously engrossed a lot in the research and reading but you know i always ask every guest i have on here what they're involved in for their own education development so on that could you give us a, a book an app or website you've personally found useful for educational development purposes
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna show my uh, my Kiwi card here, and um, it's not specifically paramedicine, and it's not specifically cognitive readiness, um, but there's a there's a wonderful book called Legacy by uh, a gentleman called James Kerr, and it's the the premise of the book is what the All Blacks can teach you about life um, and it's broken into 15 chapters because there are 15 players in a rugby team and uh, there are a number of really valuable lessons um, i'll just give you a couple of quick examples one of the the 15 lessons is this idea of sweeping the sheds yeah. which is the idea that no one person is bigger than the team and uh and the all blacks have a uh, have a thing that um at the end of the game um, a couple of people will be chosen at random. Um, it could be the star of the team. It could be the captain of the team. It could be the guy on debut, whatever else, um, are given the job of, of doing cleaning up, you know, sweep the sheds. And, and it's really this idea of, of remaining humble and and that your contribution is, is bigger than, you know, being the best player or mm-hmm. being the captain or whatever it may be. Um, and then I, I, I also really particularly like one of the lessons, which is um, no dickheads. So, uh, cause a lot of things can be solved, I reckon, if we just kind of stuck to that, <laughs> so that, um, we can disagree on stuff. Sure. But, you know, let's just, uh, not be a dickhead. Um, I love that book. I think it's really, really great. Um, if you, if you haven't had an opportunity to read it, have you, have you read it? Have
0: I have, so I have, so it's in on the bookshelf. It's a great, great there you book. Go. So you know what I'm show. talking
1: about, right? Yeah. yeah. So I love that. Um, another book just very quickly that I really enjoy, uh, but more on the sociological aspect of stuff. And this is more perhaps about why, why we should be, you know, focusing on, on outcomes that are positive for the ourselves in, in terms of positive. And I don't mean ourselves as in me, but rather ourselves as, as a society is um, the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, uh, he's a, a sociologist and a very, very, very good writer. Um, it's a brilliant book. Um, he's also got a, a, a second book uh, called Homo Deus, which is kind of the next stage past that. But it's really, Sapiens is really this look back on how we got to where we are in terms of our sociological um, uh, and uh, physio- uh, sorry psychological development. Um, and I, re- I think it's a brilliant, brilliant book. So there you go. Okay,
0: awesome ones. Too. I'll make sure i have stick those in our show notes as well. Uh, and okay, it also, yeah. it's been a pleasure chatting to you, mate. If uh, anyone is listening to this who either wants to reach out and find out a little bit more about the work you're doing or just to chat around paramedicine, you know, what's the best way they can do that?
1: Uh, if they're interested in perhaps some of more of what I've talked about today with people that I've spoken about today, people like um, Matt Pepper from TAC Med or Oliver Hamlet from, from Aberdeen University, people like that, I've done some podcasts as well. There's one called The Debrief uh, on the Australasian from the Australasian College of Paramedicine. We've done a few episodes there in and around this area. I've also done some conversations in and around the educational space um, with a group, uh, a really great uh, group of educators and clinicians called the Free Radicals Podcast, which is another great uh, group of guys in Australia doing some some wonderful stuff. So there's there's probably two if you wanted to have a listen to some stuff. Otherwise, um, you can find me as Andrew Bell on LinkedIn. Um, That's where I think you and I Ran into each other mate, which yeah. was, was great. And, and look, that's where I, I ran into Oliver as well. And you know now we're, we're working together from across the world. So I, I think that's a great platform. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Paradub or um, my email is andrew.bell at usq.edu.au. Just drop me a line. I'm, I'm very much open to, to collaboration, conversation, uh, anything in this space. So thanks very much for having me, mate. Um, hey. I hope uh, I hope we've um covered
0: things that you uh, will be of interest to your to your listeners. Uh, I think definitely, mate. I think we've definitely covered it and more as well, mate. So I'm sure like I said to you before we can go recording, I think we may have to do a part two or part three for this, dude. It's been it's been good to chat to you, mate. And like I said, you know, it was uh it was something I was looking forward to for a while, mate. So thanks a lot for giving up your time to chat to me, mate. Absolutely, my friend. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. No worries, mate. Take care. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche specific podcast. The continued support us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away, from this podcast that made you better please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show this will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people